An increasingly common practice in India is the so-called dowry, the valuables a young woman's family must provide to her husband when they marry. But dowries are also behind a rising tide of violence against wives whose parents struggle to meet constant demands for money. For Manvir Singh, the issue became personal and tragic. It claimed the life of his cousin. Manvir is now an assistant professor at the University of California, Davis. He tells his story in the current edition of The New Yorker. The data that I draw upon was showing that it is in about 80 to 90 percent of marriages. The dowry is illegal. It's been illegal since the 1960s. But nevertheless, it is a very prevalent practice, very often expected in marriages. The dowry is defined by a transfer of wealth from the bride's family to the groom's family, which is actually the opposite of what a lot of people are familiar with. What is more familiar to many people is this idea of a bride price, where essentially the groom's family kind of purchases the bride. But in dowry, it's the opposite. The bride's family actually, in addition to having the daughter move often away into the groom's family, they also have to transfer wealth. Typically, Manvir, what would a young man and his family expect a young woman to bring to a marriage via the dowry? It will very often involve cash. It can involve gold. It can involve furniture, cars, jewelry. I think historically, it was more common for there to be a diversity of goods. But increasingly, I think cash is a major component of it. But then that is often accompanied with these other consumer goods. Now, the consequence of a dowry is not just economic strain on a woman's family. From your very compelling article in The New Yorker, it can be much worse. Just how much worse? There are, I think, two really important consequences of dowry for women's status in particular. One is just the expectation of having to pay a dowry eventually can change the relationship between parents and their daughters. They essentially turn daughters into burdens. And India has worrying rates of sex-selective abortion and historically of female infanticide. As people will very often admit, that comes from the expectation of eventually having to pay a dowry. But then secondly, the fact that there is this expectation of resources being transferred from the bride's family to the groom's family often leads to, for lack of a better word, a kind of hostage negotiation. That's probably too strong, but essentially this idea that the groom's family can continue to demand resources to be transferred to them, and the bride's family is incentivized partly to maintain status, to maintain a good reputation in the community, but also because their daughter is now in this family and they need to keep that family happy. Yeah, and from what I can gather, Manvir, the daughter really does move to another family. What are the living arrangements normally after an Indian marriage that involves a dowry? India is incredibly diverse, but the prevailing residence arrangement after marriage and particularly the one most associated with dowry, is patrilocality, which simply means the bride living with the groom and his parents. One thing that really struck me about your piece was that your own family has been touched by the tragedy of dowry. Tell me about that story. In 2021, my cousin, my 40-year-old cousin, Neethi, who I know as Neethi Didi, passed away really suddenly. The story that we were told, so I was living in France, my parents are in the United States, so we were just getting information from my 
uncle and my other cousins in India. But the story we were told was that she had a heart attack. A couple of days later, it turned out, according to the postmortem, that there were very strong indications that she had been strangled. When that postmortem came out, then we learned that there was actually a much more complicated story behind this marriage, which involved frequent and enduring requests for money, jewelry, cars from the groom's family to my uncle, my cousin's father and his now deceased wife. It's still hard to know exactly what had happened. And in the piece, I want to acknowledge some uncertainty because after a death like this, there's a tug of war over narrative and over interpretation. But a lot of signs suggest that her death was one of these so-called dowry deaths, one of these deaths that results from these tussles over marriage payments. Manvir, did I read in your piece that as many as 50% of female homicides could be related to dowries? Yeah, there are numbers that actually the Indian government has produced, I believe, but that the UN has cited that estimate that between yeah, 40 and 50% of female homicides in India are dowry deaths or are related to dowry. Your own mother did not suffer the worst consequences of the dowry system, but what happened to your own mother? Because you talk about her story as well. My mother was living in India. She was born in India and she went to university. And perhaps just after she graduated, her parents, who were living in Kashmir, she was going to school in Delhi, set up a marriage for her without her consent, partly because of the influence of a very important matchmaker. And my mother met him and she did not want to get married to him. And she even told me that she threatened to kill herself. And my mother thinks so strongly of her father. And I also want to really respect the very strong feelings of love and adoration that she had for her father. But her father was, he lived in this social environment where he said, you have to marry this man. And she did. And she eventually moved to the States. And in the States, their relationship, my mother says, deteriorated even more and it became unbearable. And she decided to leave. And she successfully did leave, despite the pressure from her father to stay in that relationship. I told that story in the piece partly to just further illustrate or explore the ways in which women's options are are sometimes constrained. It's it's hard for them to leave these marriages, but also because the fact that my mom did successfully uh, leave this very unhappy marriage, I think helps us understand some of the social pressures that force women or or really limit their ability to leave in India. You mentioned earlier, Manvir, that sex-selective abortions have increased dramatically, parents simply not wanting to have daughters. How does the broader economic system, though, also contribute to violence against women in much of South Asia? Well, historically and in many agrarian contexts today, there are certain agricultural systems that really favor having sons. When you have an agrarian economy that benefits from male-associated traits, particularly an economy like plow agriculture, that leads to a very strong male preference. And people are very clear about this. There was a story in our family where after Niti Didi gave birth to her first daughter, she apologized to her mother-in-law for having a daughter. And Niti Didi lived in an urban environment. They were not an agrarian family, but these historical processes continue to perpetuate themselves. This male bias has historically contributed to female infanticide, continues to contribute to sex-selective abortion. But then the male bias also leads to a system of dowry, which further exacerbates the perception of a woman as a burden. So even now, the the expectation that you will have to pay this dowry, I think, further incentivizes having a sex-selective abortion 
or aborting female fetuses. Yeah, just finally, I mean, you were earlier made this point that dowry payments have gone from about 30% of marriages to close to universal today. Why does this persist and indeed grow in India? Because I've read some very impressive statistics about radically improved rates of literacy, school enrolment, university attendance by Indian women. Why would this persist today in the face of, of that good news? Uh, So this is a topic that economists have been debating for years. Why is it that in industrialization, in modernization, in growing affluence, we see both a spread of dowry and in some instances an actual inflation in real value? So two explanations that I've seen. One is that when you have an unequal society, a caste-structured society like India, and you have growing inequality, that further exacerbates a competition for these very high-quality men, which then just means you have a ramping up, essentially, of the price of those men or the dowry. So that's one explanation I've seen. Another explanation I've seen is that low-status families are now trying to use dowry, and particularly low-status families, low-caste families that now have access to economic capital are trying to use dowry payments to ascend caste hierarchies or to ascend status hierarchies. Manveer Singh, and we'll put a link to his article in The New Yorker at the Religion and Ethics Report homepage. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.